We are going to be in Second Kings chapter 2. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for a chance to look into your word now. And as we see these pages and the things that we learn or can learn from Elijah and Elisha, we just ask that you would make those things come clear to us, help us to understand them, <clears throat> and then help us to apply them in our lives. We ask in your name. Amen. As we uh, get into this passage today, I wanted to deal a little bit with the call of Elisha because that's who we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. Um, <clears throat> and of course, there's that whole call that we have going on. And so just that's why we did the reading from 19. You know, one of the things that I've done down through the years, um, and someone I remember who told me to do this, but to, they said, listen, if you want to know uh, who's maybe possible, a possible person to be an elder, look at the kind of heart they have. Do they have a shepherd's heart? Or do they have something other than that? <clears throat> and um, so I would kind of be watching for that. And I think it was a, I was very young at the time, probably just starting in Bible college. And then they said, and if you're looking to find people who would serve as deacons, you look for people who have a servant's heart. And the way you see that, he said, was that they're the first person to jump into something that needs to be done and don't care who gets the credit. That they'll jump in and do things just because they, they know, they see them, there's something that has to happen and they have the ability to do that and so they do it and it doesn't matter if anybody knows they just go ahead and do it um, with an elder many times what you see is that uh, they are someone who who's stepping out of their own comfort zone in order to help others encourage others so there's a lot of that that goes on and the reason I bring that up is that I want you to be watching as we go through and we're studying Elisha to see what kind of heart he had you know, did he have a servant's heart? Did he have a shepherd's heart? What kind of, as we look at it, what is it that we're seeing from Elisha? And and I'm going to make this disclaimer. If uh, if I say Elijah instead of Elisha or Elisha instead of Elijah, you know, just kind of reverse it in your own mind because uh, I'm I'm going to try really hard, but I've, it's just tough sometimes to get them to, to get them too separated. <clears throat> anyway, so verse 19, chapter of chapter 19. You know, Moses has been on Mount Sinai and he's had the demonstrations of God's power come and, and then finally the still small voice and, and, uh, the still small voice says to him, okay, you now need to go back the way you came and, and you're supposed to do a couple of things, but one of them, he's supposed to find Elisha and bring him into that whole, um, becoming a, a prophet. And so he, that's what he does and, Chapter nine, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, Elijah, Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing in the field. Twelve teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the twelfth team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and walked away. Now, a whole bunch of things happening here. One is, if you had twelve yoke of oxen plowing in the field, there's a big size field for one thing probably fairly wealthy that you could afford all those workers and all those oxen. And then the other thing we're seeing from this is, if this is as we picture it, with the oxen kind of plowing staggered across the field, the guy that's in the twelfth position is the guy that's watching everybody else and making sure they get where they're supposed to go. So just kind of, you know, we know several of those things just from the description of what's going on. Now, throwing the cloak around his shoulders 
that was a whole idea of symbolizing a call. I'm calling you and I want you to come and work with me. And, um, you know, Elisha realizes right away what this means and he runs after Elijah because Elijah just threw it on him and took off. He catches up with Elijah and he says, um, listen, can I say goodbye to everybody first? And then it's interesting because um, <clears throat> at that point in verse 20, he says, first let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I will go with you. And Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. Um, and, and that phrase, what I've done to you, is perhaps translated better, something like this, do as you please or what I have, what have I done to stop you. So it's, it's in, the implication of the way he says this, and it doesn't come real well into English, is do what you have to do and then come back. And so uh, he does turn around. He takes uh, two of the oxen, slaughters them, takes the yoke, burns the, burns the yoke, and serves up the, a feast. Um, I kept thinking, that's got to be a really heavy yoke. If with one yoke, you're cooking a two, two oxen. And I'm sure there was other things going on with that. But still, I think the symbolism he was trying to get across was, I'm leaving this behind. You know, I am not the one that's going to be doing this kind of plowing. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go ahead and cut all ties with the past in that sense. I'm not coming back here to take up this role again. And so he he does that. <clears throat> and he leaves, it says in verse uh, 21 at the end of it, then he went with Elijah as his assistant. So <clears throat> attendant is the is the word assistant. And, and really what it meant is that he went along to be a, to serve and to minister to, to Elijah. Am I doing something wrong here? Or? Okay. Um, he's going to be his apprentice on one level. Uh, the interesting thing is, uh, Elisha goes to work with Elijah, becomes his attendant, and some people measure the time frame from when he's called to the time he actually takes over to be somewhere around 18 years. Now, I don't know how they add up all the numbers, but it could have been that there was that long period of time where he was serving Elijah. And um, interestingly enough, we don't hear about Elisha again. In all of the rest of the stuff we hear about Elijah, you don't hear about Elisha until Elijah's being taken home. So, <clears throat> just an implication for us. I already mentioned Elijah probably was from a very wealthy family, probably in charge of the whole crew that was out there doing the, doing the plowing. And he leaves that and the wealth and everything involved with that to become a servant to Elijah. Uh, to serve him in any way that Elijah needed, to be an assistant, to be an attendant. And in all of that, he was learning what it meant to be a prophet. He was learning the kinds of things Elijah did, and watching Elijah, and hearing Elijah. So we, we, uh, we assume that from that point on, he's with Elijah, no matter what Elijah's doing, even though we don't hear about him in those contexts. But he's watching Elijah as he talks to the king. And he's watching Elijah as he talks to somebody else. And, and um, all of the time, he's just continuing to, to learn and to, and to grow in the areas that he needs to grow in. For me, the biggest thing I saw here was just that hard attitude of saying, Yeah, I'll come and serve you. You know, I'll leave all this behind. And I will come and I will, I will be your servant. I will be your attendant. Whatever it is that you need me to do, I will do that. Um, 
I think I would say that, that he's displaying certainly the whole idea of a servant's heart here. I came across this quote that I really appreciated. D.L. Moody said, The measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how, how many men he serves. I really love that. And I especially love that as I've been in church leadership down through the years and watching people come in and out of positions that they, that they, that they were in charge of things or they were leading and just watching how they actually did that. Um, some of the best leaders I've seen were some of the best servants uh, that I've seen and worked with. And then the next quote says this, you can tell who has a servant's heart by how they act when they are treated like a servant. And uh, that's an Kind of an important one to remember. What's going on in our hearts that matters. So James and John came to Jesus one time. It was kind of a, an illustration of this very thing. And asked Jesus, hey, we want to sit at your left hand and your right hand in the kingdom. <clears throat> and the other disciples react negatively when they hear about this, of course. And Jesus' answer in Mark 10.45 was this. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And I think we need to kind of be thinking through, okay, here's, Elijah's got some, some great things that we've learned. Well, Elijah's showing us something right up front. I will go and I will do this. However long it takes, whatever it is you need me to do, I will serve. And we are called to be like Elisha with servants' hearts when it comes to serving each other, Serving our families and wherever else God might put us in situations where we can be of service to others. Now, we're going to be saying goodbye to Elijah today. So I thought, well, let's go back and just hit some unique points about Elijah. Um, a lot of people take Elijah and look back to Moses and compare him there. Or they take Elijah and they look forward to John the Baptist and compare him there. There's some comparisons that are there. But a unique place in the Bible, Elijah and Enoch never died. So that's the first thing we see. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. Elijah joined Moses and Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, many thought Jesus was Elijah come back, and he, of course, said he wasn't. Uh, people asked John the Baptist if he was Elijah, and he said, No, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. And Jesus came along afterwards and said, John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come. So he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, if you remember when you're reading through uh, from that prophecy of <clears throat> Malachi 4, 5, and 6. James used Elijah as an illustration of the power of prayer. And then Elijah is mentioned more than any other prophet, Old Testament prophet, uh, in the New Testament. Just some real quick thoughts on that. But here's some characteristics of his life. As I went back and just looked at some of the things that we had studied um, probably the most important one you have is his prayer life. He was a man of prayer. And it was in that time of prayer where he was praying, James tells us, that that's when he, the, the Lord stopped the rain. He was a man who mourned deeply over sin and, and the fact that his, his nation and, and the people of Israel were going and following Baal and Asherah just was something that really hurt, tugged at his heart. Many miracles. There's only two people in the whole Bible that did more miracles than Elijah. One was Jesus, and the other one was Elisha. So those two things, uh, he was involved in, in many miraculous things. Faith. He trusted God for the impossible. I mean, think about what he was praying for when he was praying that it would not rain. 
He's praying for God to change the weather pattern over a whole chunk of the world there just because his people needed to learn. And, and he was willing to pray for that, and, and, and it happened. Courage. I mean, he's on top of Mount Carmel. He's got nobody, nobody on his side at all. The king Ahab is up there. All the 450 prophets of Baal are up there. And when the people are challenged, they're silent. They don't have anything to do with this. That's someone who knows that they're there because God has placed them there. And he, did, he stood up and did that. And that goes back to his obedience as well. <clears throat> and he's on Mount Sinai. He's gone through that whole running from Jezebel thing. And, and the Lord says, okay, now it's time to go back. Go back the way he came. And he gives him some things to do. But he's going right back to Samaria where Jezebel is still there and still wanting to take him out if she possibly can. But he goes because that's what God told him to do. And of course, the, he's the man that was, you know, we, we remember him running, but also he was restored and went back. And that's, I think, a really critical part. Sometimes we remember that he, he was scared of Jezebel when he had just taken care of 450 prophets. And we forget that, yeah, he was at that moment, very much moving in a direction God didn't want him to go. And yet, when he was confronted by it, and it was God himself that confronted him, he turned around and he went back and did what he was supposed to do. And that's just an amazing thing when you think about it. There's some implications from Elijah's life that I'd like us to just take a quick look at. He is the one that started that process of saying to the people of Israel, okay, Baal is evil. Asherah is evil. You need to be worshiping God. And and I think he desperately wanted to see this massive revival where the whole nation came back to God. And and that didn't happen in his lifetime. It didn't actually happen at all in, in the northern kingdom. But there were people who were strengthened and encouraged. There were people who, be you know, the whole schools of the prophets were things that Elijah and Elisha set up. There were communities of prophets that were there because they wanted to pray for the nation of Israel and they wanted to work for, for that whole thing. Um, and how did all that happen? I think a lot of it comes from Elijah being a man of prayer. Look at James five seventeen and 18 with me. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly <clears throat> that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. That's huge. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So Elijah, if you want to know anything about Elijah, I think you go back to prayer. That is something that was so, so powerful in Elijah. And it'd be interesting to see how many times he and Elisha got up and just had prayer times as they were traveling around and doing the things that they had to do. And I have found out down through the years that if I really want to make people feel guilty, and that's never my goal, but if I really want to, the thing I need to preach about is prayer. Uh, And that's because most of us struggle with that. Um, I know some people who don't, but I certainly am one that struggle with it. So I, I just went through some things I wanted to share on prayer because I think Elijah, the big lesson we learned from Elijah is he's a man of prayer, and we can be people of prayer as well. Here's what... Uh, helps for prayer. One, ask God to help you. Um, Lord, I know I should pray more, but man, it's hard. The time is an issue. I don't know how to do it, Lord, but please help me. I think God loves that kind of prayer. If we're serious about it, yeah, I want to, I want to learn how to pray. Um, one thing you can do, and, and there's several ways of doing this, is keep a prayer journal. 
Um, you kind of write down what you're praying for and then a yes or a no when it happens, maybe a date. That's one way of using a prayer journal. Other people take, take a journal and they just write their prayers. Uh, and I've done this at various times and it's been so helpful and encouraging to me to just take enough time to actually write what I'm praying to God and let it be, be and then that's part of my journal. It's part of the, the um, where I will look and see answers and then I can go and put it back there. So that's one way that you can you can be encouraged in that way. Uh, another thing, the language that you use, fancy language isn't necessary. I grew up hearing all of the older style of praying and yet <clears throat> many of those same men that I heard pray never told me I had to do that. They said, just talk to God. Just just talk to him. And I found that that was very, very helpful. <clears throat> you can pray scripture. If you're reading along and you find a verse uh, that really speaks to you, take that and, and make it personal. I was reading Psalm 121, and the whole idea of my help comes from the Lord. And I was saying, Lord, I don't know what's coming today, but you're the one I need to look to for that help. You're the only one that can give me that help. Lord, you're the creator of heaven and earth. I long for you today to give me all that I need to fulfill the things that you have for me to do. So just use your own words and pray the scripture back to God or pray the scripture for someone else. And you can pray even if you don't know the details. This is something that every now and then I've seen happen. We'll be with someone and say, you know, um, we'd like you to, to pray. And, oh, okay, well, yeah. And then they start asking like a dozen questions. And they want this detail and that detail. And, and they don't need all those details to be able to pray. Uh, it's nice to have them sometimes, or some of them. But sometimes all we need to know is that brother so-and-so is really struggling. We don't even know what. But we can take him to God and say, Lord, he's having a hard time. It's really difficult. I understand that things are going on that I don't even know, but you do. And so, Lord, I, <clears throat> I ask that you would touch his heart and touch, his, uh, touch him in whatever way he needs to feel your presence so that he can move on and keep going. And, and so we can pray, even though we don't know all of the details, we can still pray for the person. There's many missionaries that we don't have a lot of details on. But we can pray things like, you know, Lord, I pray that their walk with you would grow and become stronger. I pray that they would be encouraged today. And just... Any number of things that you can pray. Safety is really important when we pray for our missionaries. And um, <clears throat> and there's a lot of other things. If they have children, pray for the, the safety and the schooling. And you can just bring those up because, you know, that that's kind of part of life for them. So um, never give up is the last one. Uh, I've done this so many times, especially when I was younger. I'd say, okay, I'm going to get up every day and pray for an hour. Well, you know, that lasted a couple of days, and then it was maybe half an hour, and and then I miss a day, and then by the end of, end of the month, I'm just really kind of beating myself up for having made this decision and then not following through on it. And I finally had to realize that, you know what, <clears throat> no matter what happens, if I don't pray, the next day I can start again. I can start again. I don't have to. I don't have to beat myself up and 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 uh, you know just treat myself terribly because somehow I f- I fell apart when it came to the prayer that I wanted to do. But don't give up. Keep coming back. Keep coming back to. I want to become more a person of prayer. Prayer is powerful. It's something that God invites us to do. And the, one of the last things I want to just mention when we're praying for others, that's that's important. 
But when we're also talking to the Lord about things that we struggle with or things that we long for, those are the times when we can draw close to Him in ways that we can in any other way. When we read His Word, yes, we're hearing from Him, but when we speak to Him and, and talk to Him about the troubles that are on our heart, those are times when that intimacy uh, with God can grow. So that's it. We say goodbye to Elijah at this point. <clears throat> And we're going to say goodbye to him for good in just a second here as we get into chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. Um, Let's go ahead and put that map up there, if you would, Sarah, please. And just uh, just leave it there for a little bit. Um, Number one up there is probably where Gilgal was. There's all kinds of different places that are named twice or three times that have the same name. As far as we can tell, number one is is in the general area of where the Gilgal was that we'll see here in a second. And then you've got Bethel right down there at the bottom. And three is Jericho, and then four is on the other side of, of the Jordan. So let me just jump into this. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. And so they're coming from there, and they're going to, to Bethel. And, and Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord's telling me to go to Bethel. And Elisha's, Elisha's response was, As surely as the Lord lives... And you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went down together to Bethel. And then that's repeated. So that happened as they're leaving, um, <clears throat> as they're leaving Gilgal. They get to Bethel and they get to Bethel. And what happens is that one of the people from that community of prophets comes up and says, did you know that the Lord's going to take your, your master today? And he says, yeah, yeah, I know. Just let's, let's not talk about that right now. And then again, when they're done doing this farewell visit with the, with the prophets from, from Bethel, Elijah says, now you stay here because God's telling me to go down to Jericho. And again, Elisha says, uh, you know what? I'm not doing that. I'm going with you. You can't make me stay. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. It was about like that. And then down to Jericho. And they have the same thing happen at Jericho. Your master's going to get taken to you. Yeah, I know, I know. And, and then, you know, Elisha, you need to stay here. No, I'm going with you. And, and so, you know, you've got this farewell tour where Elisha is say, Elijah's saying goodbye to all these people that he's helped establish in these communities of prophets. And then they cross over the Jordan <clears throat> um, by the, the two of them cross over after they leave um, Jericho. Verse 7 says that there were 50 men from the group of prophets who went and watched from a distance. And so they're kind of watching, but they're not involved in the immediate uh, scene that's going on. And verse 8 says, Elijah folded his, his cloak together and struck the water, and the river receded, it divided, and the both of them walked across on dry ground. Um, they came out the other side, and this is an interesting point here. Now, Elijah says to Elisha, now they know the time is really short. You know, they don't know how it's going to happen, but they know the Lord's going to be taking Elijah home. And Elijah says to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. Is there something I can do to bless you? Is there any way I can be of help or encouragement to you? Something like that is kind of what he's saying to Elisha. And Elisha's response, I think, is absolutely fascinating. Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. Elisha gets it. He's watched Elijah. And he knows if he does not have the Spirit of God working powerfully in him, 
he's not going to be able to be the prophet that he's supposed to be. And so he's saying, I want, I want double what you had. You know, and of course Elijah says, listen, I, it's not mine to give, but then if you see me when I'm taken, then, you know, it'll be. And if not, it won't be. Um, and it's interesting because I think Elisha is saying, I'm going to be assuming the role of Elijah. I'm becoming God's prophet for the nation at this point. And I got to have the Spirit of God powerfully working or I'm not going to be able to do the job. And I think that's, that's what's <clears throat> fueling his, um, his sense of, of what's going on. <clears throat> and then, verse 11. They're walking along there, and suddenly a chariot of fire appears drawn by horses of fire, and it drove between the two men, separating them. Now, again, I, I, I love these kinds of things, and I have questions about it. Um, I think as a young person, I was taught that the chariot stopped and grabbed Elijah, and the chariot took him up into heaven. As I read this verse today, it doesn't seem like that. Drawn by horses, it drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. So he got beamed up, you know. God beamed him up in a special way. Um, so it, it's one of those things where you, you, you have this amazing thing that has happened. And Elisha saw it and cried, <clears throat> My father, my father. I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. That's a sign of deep grief and mourning. And so it's, I think the chariot came by and um, Elijah is taken up. And I think he's saying, I still see the, I still see the chariots and, and, and the horse, horses. And, uh, and then they disappear from sight. And that's when he says, okay, he's, he's gone. He's not coming back. So Elisha picks up Elijah's cloak, probably the mantle that he had put on Elisha originally, uh, or a replacement for it, which had fallen when he was taken up. Then Elisha turned, returned to the bank of the Jordan, and <clears throat> he takes the cloak that Elijah had just separated the river with. He strikes the river, and it separates. But the, before it does, he cries out. Remember, there's 50 people watching. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And he strikes the river, and the river divides, and Elisha walks through. So the people who are watching, they see him. Whether they could see the chariot and the other stuff, we don't know how far away they were. But they could see that one's coming back, and it's not Elijah, it's Elisha. And Elisha comes, and he does what Elijah did. Touches the river, walks through on dry ground. That's the first miracle that Elisha does. Um, and so he comes up and, and um, <clears throat> there's a bunch of these people from, from Jericho and um, they said the spirit of Elijah is on Elijah or reverse that um, <clears throat> and then they went to meet him and they bowed before him and uh, they offered to send people to go hunting for Elijah in case God maybe sucked him up and then dropped him somewhere else I don't even understand that thinking, and Elisha didn't either. He basically didn't want him to do it. But it says here, they kept urging him until they shamed him into agreeing. Um, so maybe they, he thought they were going to think he was just mean, that they, he wouldn't want people to go find Elijah. 
But uh, he sends them out. It says that after three days they came back and they hadn't found Elijah. And uh, I, <laughs> I love verse 18. Elijah was still at Jericho when they returned. Didn't I tell you not to go? <laughs> I told you not to go, but you did. And so, you know, that's the end of that whole scene and that whole piece. So now Elisha is the one. He's the prophet of Israel. And he's done that first miracle. Uh, was separating the water. Then you've got another interesting thing here. He's still in Jericho. They come to him and say, hey, listen, our spring has been poisonous. Uh, we can't grow things with the water from it. And we have sickness and other things going on. And he, uh, verse 20, Elisha says, bring me a new, a new bowl with salt. And so they brought it to him. He went down to the spring and he throws the salt in. <clears throat> and then this is what he says. This is what the Lord says. I've purified this water. It will no longer cause death or infertility, and the water has remained pure ever since, just as Elisha said. And so you've got this second miracle, and this second miracle is really amazing because this is Jericho, and they've had this problem for a long, long time, and and now it's God says this is going to be okay from here on. You're going to have good water. You're going to be able to, you know, some of those medical things that you've had going on, they will they will stop. And so, again, you've got the second miracle saying, okay, he has the power that God has given him. He has the power that Elijah had. He has the power of a prophet of God. And and God was the one that spoke through him to say, hey, this is what's going to happen with the water. It's going to be okay. Now we enter into a section that uh, is is difficult for a lot of people. I just want to say we're going to work our way through it, and and we'll talk about giving giving some thought to this as we go along. so Elijah was in Jericho, and um, he's going to go now to Bethel, which is just up the ways <clears throat> and where he came from. Let me just tell you a little bit about Bethel. Bethel had become the center of Jeroboam's pagan cult. And what I mean by that is Jeroboam was the first king after Israel was divided. And Jeroboam did not want the people of Israel the northern section, to go down to to Jerusalem for those festivals. There's three of those a year that they were supposed to go for, and maybe to the temple for other things. And he didn't want that, so he established two places of worship with golden calves. And he puts his golden calf up there. He installed his own priesthood there. And his goal was to get Israel never to go back down to Jerusalem. So in other words, we're going to cut off all worship of God, and we're going to start our own worship up here of these calves. And these things became very... Uh, the cults became very, very powerful. Um, and so here, Bethel is where one of those calves was. All right? So this is a huge place of, of pagan worship and all that went on with that. And it's interesting because Elijah and probably Elisha with him had established communities of prophets in many of the places where they had these kind of big um, examples of pagan religion. There was a community of prophets in Bethel. They were there to continually be bringing people the truth of God in spite of the fact that you had this big, huge cult there um, going on. So keep that in mind now as we look at the the verses. And um, as he was walking along the road, a group of, your translation may say lads, uh, boys, uh, the reality is it really should say young men. Uh, It can be translated a whole bunch of different ways, and it actually means is used as young men in various places in the Old Testament. So these young men from the town began mocking and making fun of him. 
And they said, go way baldy, uh, or go on up baldy, depending on, on the translation that you've got. And Elisha turned around and looked at them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. Now, cursing in the name of the Lord isn't swearing. It's calling down God's judgment. That's what he's doing. He's saying, Lord God, bring your judgment on these young men. Um, and then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. So this is a huge group of people that was out there. Um, <clears throat> and um, again, remember, this is a, a center of idolatry, big time. Uh, evidently, Elisha's approach triggered some kind of a mass group of these young men coming out after him. Uh, we don't really know exactly what they might have had in mind, but they were shouting insults at him. Um, and so <clears throat> Elisha at that point calls down um, calls down God's judgment on them. And God responded by sending <clears throat> bears to, to maul 40, 42 of them. Um, Second Chronicles 36.16 was not spoken to Israel at this point in time, but it was spoken to Jerusalem. So let's go ahead and put Second Chronicles up there. Thank you. Um, this is descriptive of what these young men were like, even those being said about Israel later in, in history. Uh, they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God, of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. In the case of Jerusalem, like I said, this is way down the road, that was the end. Nebuchadnezzar came after that. Okay, so that's how God took care of that problem. But this is a description of these young, young men here too. And this is exactly what they're like. And so Elisha cursed them in the name of the Lord and he called divine judgment down on them because they had ridiculed God and they had ridiculed his prophet. Um, the message to these guys was something like, don't mess with the, my prophet. Don't mess with the prophet of God. So the first miracle was cross, you know, crossing the Jordan River on dry land. The second miracle was purify the water. And this third miracle was that when he called on God to judge these guys, he did. And he, he sent the bears out. Remember, that's something Elijah had done with the 50 people who came out to arrest him. He asked God to judge them, and fire came down from heaven and, and took care of the 50. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting. If you go back and read through this, this isn't too many days passed from the time that, that Elijah and Elisha had come through Bethel themselves together. And I find it fascinating that Elijah and Elisha come through town and nobody goes near them. And it may very well be that what's going on is they've heard about Elijah. I mean, you know, Mount Carmel, everybody knew about that and the fire from heaven and everybody knew about those two groups of soldiers that got, uh, that, that were also killed with fire from heaven. And so Elijah and Elisha were not bothered at all as they were going through Bethel and as they visited the, the community of prophets there. But Elisha is coming back. Elijah's no longer with him. And it's very possible that a lot of these young men went out there and said, Hey, you know what? Let's just, just scare him to pieces. Let's really make him know that uh, you know we're, gonna, we're not going to have his nonsense here. Um, and so... It's very possible. Now, one of the other um, sources that I was looking at said that they thought that these young men that came out were actually people who worked in some capacity in, in the worship of the golden calf. And again, it's speculation, <clears throat> but it, it could be. And that would explain a little bit more about the, 
the judgment that God brought down on them. God had warned his people. And when he gave them the Old Testament law through Moses, they entered into a covenant with God, a contract. They promised to obey his word. God warned them many, many times, starting at Mount Sinai. And, and he, rescu- he said, I rescued you out of slavery, and now we're going to you know, enter into this contract. And they all agreed to it. Leviticus 26 is part of that. Look at what it says. If you walk in hostility against me, And are not willing to obey me. I will increase your affliction seven times according to your sins. I will send wild animals against you. So God is doing what he had promised he would do to people who were acting like these young men. Who were worshippers of the golden calf. And who would come out to really try to bother the prophet of God. The prophet of Israel. Um, And so God just says okay. You know it was in the law. I, you know it, and here's the result of, of your actions. You do this, and this is what happens. Um, I think in some ways this, this is the start of his public ministry, Elisha's. And on one level what's being said is, we are going to continue fighting Baal worship and idol worship everywhere in Israel. And so you're on notice now that we're at war with anyone who wants to worship idols and who wants to do the kind of behavior that you guys have been doing and the kinds of things that they did in that kind of worship. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's that continuation of what Elijah had done when he was on Mount Carmel and said, hey, you know, God is God, is God and it's not Baal. Now, the lesson for us from this is not obey God or something terrible will happen to you. Uh, that's not the lesson for us. I think that the lesson for us comes from Galatians 6-7, which again, is very similar to what he said in Leviticus. Do not be deceived. God will not be made a fool of, or he will not, you cannot mock God, for a person will harvest or reap what he sows or plants. So the lesson for us is you reap what you sow, which is a very simple lesson. And, and on one level, that's, a, that's the lesson of these young men from Bethel as well. You, you're going to sow this kind of stuff, this kind of worship, this kind of evil, then you know there will be results and consequences based on that. Uh, remember, they'd been called for a long time, as Elijah would make these trips, and they would, the prophets would be saying, "Hey, people, it's time to turn away from this and turn back to God." Um, and and they still they wouldn't do it. These young men were worshippers of the golden calf, and they were facing God's judgment as a result. They kept on rejecting God and sowing the twisted evil ways of what they believed. So um, that's why God said, here's the judgment then. So this is, this is another reminder to us that God's judgment may be delayed, but it's always certain. God's judgment, if something needs to be judged and taken care of, God, God doesn't forget. He may wait. He may let some time go by. But you do reap what you sow, and that's what happened to these yeah, to these men from Bethel. Um, <clears throat> and quite honestly, on a different level, we have to be really careful ourselves because the kinds of things we do in life are the kinds of things we're going to get back. Uh, if if all I do is criticize and complain and and just moan about about someone, eventually that's going to come back to haunt me because you don't do those kinds of things. Whatever the things may be, you reap what you sow. Um, so for us, the question becomes, what are we sowing? 
what seeds are we planted? Um, you know, you can't put corn seeds in the ground and expect watermelons. It just doesn't work that way. Galatians 6, 9 then tells us what we should be sowing. So we must not grow weary in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not give up. So for me, the lesson here is you reap what you sow, but why don't you sow good? And why don't you sow those things that you can? Make sure that you're sowing seeds of obedience and faithfulness to God and, and that you're doing those good things for others that God has called you to do. Because he says, if you keep on doing these things, and even if you're tired, keep on doing them. Don't get weary in doing good, because the harvest is coming. So don't give up. Then we need to start planting what is good and keep working on those things and keep on growing and not being weary. That's the hard part sometimes, isn't it? You're doing stuff and you're you're working and maybe you're reaching out to people and all of a sudden you realize, man, I'm just exhausted. I'm tired. And I think Galatians 6 and 9 would say, fine, take, take a little break, but don't quit. Don't let weariness in doing good be something that stops you from doing good. So keep on doing good. What do we take away from all this? It's just a very simple takeaway, really. Go ahead and put that map up there, sir, if you would. Okay, so down there, number one is Bethel. He leaves Bethel, it says. From there, Elijah went to Mount Carmel, way up there, number two. And finally, to Samaria. Now, I hadn't even thought of this, but as I was reading and studying, someone said, isn't it interesting that Elijah's ministry was largely rural in the sense that he didn't stay in big population centers. Now, he came to them when God directed him to do so, but he didn't live in those big areas. He many times was very isolated. And yet here you've got Elisha who comes along and he does this tour of all the prophets. He goes up to Mount Carmel and then he goes to Samaria, the capital of some of Israel where all of the bad stuff that could possibly happen happens and that's where he goes and I just think that is the coolest thing Elijah may be gone but God is not I think that's one of the messages from this section <clears throat> matter of fact I came across this quote and it was especially Specific to Elijah being called home and Elisha being left there. It says, when God's leader is removed, everything of God remains. I think that's a wonderful thing to remember. Elijah may be gone, that's okay. God's not. And God has raised up Elisha to take Elijah's place. So from Bethel, Elijah went up to Mount Carmel and finally returned and set up in Samaria. He took residence in Samaria, had to deal with the king and all the people on a regular basis, with all of the people, the Baal worship on a regular basis. But I love the fact that he now has a presence in Samaria from which he can begin to at least disseminate the truth about God and continue that battle which had started when Elijah started everything. So 
again, he was Elijah's apprentice for a long time. And then he comes back as the prophet of Israel. Elisha takes over and Elijah is called home. And the only thing Elisha can do is to trust God and go and do the things that God has called him to do. I know that none of us are called to be prophets in that sense, but I think one of the neatest things around in, in this in this uh, illustration for me is the fact that uh, where God puts us is where we need to be shining and speaking and doing the things that He's called us to do until He moves us somewhere else. So wherever you are right now is where God wants you to be and where you need to be investing for Him in the people that are there. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You so much for Your Word and thank You for... The lives of Elijah and Elisha, thank you that we can learn lessons from them. And thank you, Lord God, that you are a God of power, a God of grace, that you're sovereign. There's so many things. And for all of those things, you are our Father in heaven. And you sent your Son to save us. And so we humbly ask that you would encourage and strengthen us for the tasks that you have for us to do. May we go and do those good things and not be weary. We ask in your name. Amen.